Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 55 and today we are interviewing Dr. Kevin Gendro. Yes, another episode with a medical professional, which is really fabulous to sort of be following on from last week with Dr. Ruth Tapsell, that we now actually are going to be interviewing a obesity medicine specialist. So Jackie, we got to know, well, you got to know Dr. Kevin through the Low Carb MD podcast. Yes, I first heard Dr. Kevin on the Low Carb MD podcast, but I was also contacted via the website by Jessica Inwood, who is uh, one of Kevin's work partners, and she told us how he'd lost over 125 pounds, said he was very fascinating and suggested we should interview him. So if you have anybody that you want to recommend, you can do so on our website. And it's a really, again, not only have we got the medical professional story this week, but we've also got a lived experience, which is so rich. And just like, you know, Dr. Lenskis, um, Dr. Tro, um, you know, Prof. Noakes, we've got medical professionals that have firsthand experience of being overweight and knowing, you know, restrictive calorie um, counting doesn't work. Mm, yeah, they. well, we've all tried it. We've all been there. We've all done it. But I like the fact that they, they're they telling their patients to eat less and move more. And then when they try to do it, it doesn't work. So then they've got to go off looking for something else. What can they do to be different to make it work? And you're absolutely right. That There's that power in that, that lived experience, that first-hand um, experience. So we'll be able to hear more of that in our interview. But before we do that, Jackie, can you tell us a bit more about Dr. Kevin? Dr. Kevin R. Gendro is a board-certified obesity medicine physician who lives and practices in Fall River, Massachusetts, USA. Back in 2016, Dr. Gendro weighed 306 pounds at just 27 years old. He was diagnosed with morbid obesity, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, high blood pressure, fatty liver disease and obstructive sleep apnea before finishing his residency in family medicine. After his 31-year-old sister was tragically diagnosed with a rare form of ovarian cancer, Kevin knew he would have to prioritise his own health in order to help care for his sister's children in the event of her passing. He lost 125 pounds over 18 months using a combination of low-carbohydrate diet and intermittent fasting. 
Dr. Gendro now works full-time at South Coast Health as an obesity specialist, helping his patients transform their health through sustainable weight loss. He utilizes a combination of low-carbohydrate dieting, intermittent fasting, and in some cases medication to help his patients. Dr. Gendro has amassed a large online following across Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, where he regularly posts inspirational and motivational content. Over the years, he's published two children's books, helped run a free primary care clinic for uninsured patients and engaged in early childhood literacy initiatives. He recently published an autobiographical book titled Fasting While Furious, How I Turned Anger and Sadness into Motivation for Weight Loss. Great. Let's hear from Dr. Kevin. Welcome, Dr. Kevin, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> thank you. So we, all, as you know, we always start with where in the world are you? I am in Fall River, Massachusetts in the United States. Great. And I believe that's southern Massachusetts, isn't it? Right. Yes, yes. I'm like an hour south of Boston. Great. So... You've got a really fascinating story, um, not only about the gaining weight, but things that were going on with your family. Would you be happy to share that? Yes, of course. Um, You know, when it comes to my weight loss journey, I do like to start with um, how I put on my weight to begin with, um, because I was a 306 pound doctor back in 2016. So um, I just like to explain my story, explain myself a little bit of why I put on the weight um, over the years. So basically my childhood was, um, you know, very active. I love to hike, I love to fish. I was involved involved in martial arts with my father. Um, It really wasn't until my late teen years that I started to put on weight. And it was around the time that my father was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma. Um, He had stage four skin cancer and I was 17 at the time. He was 47 and over an 18 month period, he underwent uh, various chemotherapy treatments, radiation, multiple surgeries. And unfortunately, every time we um, received news from his doctors, every time he had a scan, it was bad news after bad news. And with that bad news, I began to develop a coping mechanism of turning to food. So basically things like cookies, crackers, chips, cereal, sandwiches, those all became my crutch and my antidepressant. And so between the rigors of being a pre-medical student in undergrad and then moving on to medical school in Philadelphia, I slowly but surely packed on over 100 uh, pounds of excess weight. And that's how I ended up at 306 pounds, diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, sleep apnea, and fatty liver disease by age 27. Yeah, that's it's very young to have all those diseases, but I guess it's more common nowadays. It is. Yeah, it's increasingly common to be diagnosed at earlier and earlier ages. And I'm sure there's some genetic predisposition that I had to those things. But of course, I was abusing my body by being 300 plus pounds at such a young age. Um, and unfortunately, the, there is a sad kind of story um, as to the reason why I decided to change my life for the better. And that's 
Um, when I was 27, when I was 306 pounds, my 31 year old sister was diagnosed with cancer herself. And for her, it was a rare form of ovarian cancer called a germ cell tumor. And unfortunately, over an 18 to 20 month period, very similar to our father, she underwent chemotherapy, radiation, multiple surgeries. She had a stem cell transplant at Dana-Farber in Boston. And unfortunately, it was such a parallel story for her that, you know, when she would get scans, we would get bad news after bad news. And rather than choosing to eat myself to death and cope with this horrible news um, by eating more processed carbs and gaining even more weight, I decided to choose differently. And I did that predominantly because I knew she had uh, a five-year-old and a one-year-old child at the time. And I would have to step up as their uncle to help raise them in the event of her passing. So I was basically motivated and inspired to uh, choose a healthy lifestyle for her and for her children. And um, I really never looked back since. It's been five years now that I've um, been on this journey. I lost 125 pounds in the first 18 months um, using low carb and intermittent fasting. And now I'm board certified in obesity medicine and um, am moving towards uh, working as a full-time weight loss specialist. So what led you to low carb because it's not, and fasting, because it's not, well, it's more common nowadays, but at that time it probably wasn't very common knowledge. Right, right. Yeah. 2016, it really wasn't. Um, and if you look at, you know, medical school curriculums, they're really not teaching low carb as the go-to, you know, lifestyle regimen. Really the focus in medical school is on medications, not lifestyle changes. We had very few classes on nutrition and the ones that we did have were about, you know, low fat and Mediterranean rather than low carb or keto. Um, so yeah, what led me to low carb was I really, the first major step that I took was eliminating processed foods. And in the process, almost all of the processed foods that I had in my house were processed carbs. So I was more approaching it as like an eat, eating clean diet. And, in, and I just happened to stop eating things like bread and pasta and chips and cookies and crackers and cereal, which made up most of my diet. I was kind of eating like the food pyramid. I was having like cereal, pancakes, waffles for breakfast, sandwiches for lunch. And then it was like pasta, potatoes, and more bread for dinner, which is, I mean, that's what they taught people for so long was that food pyramid with grains on the bottom, six servings of grains per day. So that's the way that I was eating. And when I got rid of all of the processed, uh, processed foods, it meant that I was inherently eating a low carb diet. I was between 50 and 70 grams of carbs per day, most days. And that was down from around 300 to 400 grams of carbs per day. So I immediately began losing weight. And over the course of around six to nine months, I lost 70 pounds. And so my sister was able to uh, witness this. And actually my brother-in-law also went on a weight loss journey of his own. And so both of us lost 70 pounds before she passed. Um, and then I ended up plateauing around 230, 230 something. And uh, that's when I was frankly inspired by Jason Fung. I read his book, The Obesity Code, and really uh, got on track with intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating. And I started restricting my carbohydrates to 40 grams or less per day. 
And the rest is history. I lost, uh, you know, the rest of my excess weight. I got down to 180 pounds and have been in maintenance mode ever since. Great. That's so sad that you had to go through all of that to find where you are now. But I guess these things happen. So do you have any suggestion? I don't, this is a hard one, but cancer comes up so often now, you know, it's a about 30% of the population uh, will be diagnosed with cancer. Is there anything about the way we're eating and living that will influence that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, researchers have found that at least 40% of known cancers and at least 13 known cancers, um, including uh, colon cancer and breast cancer, have links to obesity. So it may not be, you know, a particular food that you're eating is linked directly, and it could be more correlation than causation. Um, And I don't want to speak in absolutes, obviously, as a practicing doctor, but, you know, the slimmer you can be and the closer to a normal weight you can be for your height, the better off you'll be when it comes to a cancer diagnosis. And if you have something like, you know, breast cancer or colon cancer, or one of these strongly linked cancers that are absolutely linked to obesity, I would, um, you know, consider any kind of dietary regimen that you can to get uh, the excess weight off. So I definitely when I have patients, um, for our first visit, we talk about family history, and we talk about concerns that they may have, because a lot of people say things like, you know, my grandmother died of breast cancer, and I don't want to die the same way it was horrible. And that's when I step in and say, well, um, just so you know, many forms of breast cancer are linked to obesity. And so being a normal weight, or at least closer to a normal weight for your height is going to be so helpful in staving off that diagnosis. Do you believe that insulin has a role to play as well with cancer? I do. And I think, you know, insulin is so heavily linked to um, just obesity in general, being overweight and um, cancer, as well as diabetes and fatty liver disease and high cholesterol. I think this um, state of metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, this very inflamed state that many Uh, people's bodies are in chronically leads to things like cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And so um, the, the, you know, the sooner you can lower your insulin and improve your insulin sensitivity, the better. And one great way to do that is um, low carb, just a general low carb approach, which is, you know, usually defined as less than 40 or less than 50 grams of carbohydrates per day um, and, or intermittent fasting. And so that's those two, um, lifestyle regimens are what I start most of my patients on when I first meet them. Our first visit is all about, um, you know, diet. And I think they're expecting to meet me as the medical weight loss doctor and get a medication and just like have this quick fix, take their Phentermine or their Saxenda and be done with it. But um, I have 40 minute appointments and almost the entirety of the 40 minutes is about nutrition and no one ever expects it. But Um, I think people are happy to avoid, you know, medications and in the process of losing weight, hopefully we can get them off of some of the meds they take for their blood pressure, their cholesterol, their diabetes, et cetera. How was it for you? Like, obviously you'd been to medical school, you know, you were 27 and 306 pounds, you know, were people looking at you going, shouldn't you know, doctor knows best, you know, in that way that why aren't you looking after yourself? You know, did you ever feel that? stigma of judgment of you know doctor knows best and 
well, clearly you're not doing the, you know, calories in, calories out thing. So how's that working for you? Right, right. Yeah, no, that uh, was something that I dealt with quite a bit. Um, thankfully, during my biggest years, when I was 300 plus pounds, I was a resident physician. So it was still during training, but I did have a panel of my own. And so I had to take care of patients in a longitudinal way. And I had quite a few patients, of course, who were overweight and obese. And we had to discuss their weight because they had certain comorbid conditions like diabetes or prediabetes that were definitely linked to their weight. And it was so hard for me to walk into a room with a middle-aged man and he is 240 pounds and I'm 300 pounds. And I had to tell him that, you know, some of these lab values are abnormal because of his weight. And then they just like turn it right back on you. Like, well, you're not doing anything about your weight. You're the same size every time I see you. And it's so hard because in medical school, when you know you want to become a doctor, I feel like it's always, everyone else is always the priority. And, and that's true for like the medical profession in general, but it's also true as like my personality as a, as a human, I just don't really, and didn't really prioritize my own health. Like it wasn't about me. It was like, I need to take care of my patients. I need to make sure my family is okay. Like I didn't care what I ate at the end of the day. It was like, I was just surviving and there was no part of me that was thriving. There was no part of me that was like energetic. I was basically just like sluggish, fatigued, just like tired all the time. And it was really just about, you know, like I just have to, you know, eat something and get to the next day of work to help my patients. It wasn't really about me. So very How would you say that question. your mental health was at that time? You know, clearly, you know, there was obviously some grief, some trauma. You'd gone through the, the loss of your of your father. And, you know, there was obviously this reconciling, as you said, this self-soothing, you know, through food, you were self-medicating with the processed carbohydrates. Did you, did you, I mean, clearly you were not okay. Did you get some help for your, just for your well-being at that time? Um, I wish that I had, I think I maybe would have started, uh, you know, this lifestyle change and losing weight a little sooner if I had. And my coping mechanism really was food. As you said, it was processed carbs. They were my antidepressant. They were my therapist. I just shut down and watched Netflix and ate myself to death. Like that was my coping mechanism was terrible, very unhealthy. And I think this is a very common people, a common problem that people have. Um, so, you know, I really wish that I hadn't done that, but I feel like it was a learning opportunity. And, you know, now after losing my sister, I've been to a grief counselor and I think my mental health is in, in, in so much better shape just because, I know how to cope now and having, you know, a therapist, a grief counselor that I can go to when I'm sad means that, you know, I won't go to that dark place of depression in the future, at least, you know, be less likely to. Um, I definitely did have, you know, I was listing my diagnoses earlier, like the sleep apnea, the diabetes, the hyperlipidemia. I didn't list anxiety and depression. I was not formally diagnosed with those two things, but I know that I had major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety, you know, as a doctor, I know I could self-diagnose in five seconds. I know exactly what was mm. going on. And I, I had binge eating disorder as well. I would, um, something stressful would happen. Like I would have to, you know, tell a patient they have cancer. And my response to that was of course, like I couldn't handle it mentally telling someone that they had cancer given what I had dealt with. So I would leave the office and buy a packet of Oreos and eat the whole mm. thing. And that was my like temporary dopamine serotonin release in the brain. 
Absolutely. And that's that was going to be my next question was, you know, what we know now about that sort of neurophysiology, you know, clearly there was some sort of addictive sort of, as you said, that sort of serotonin dopamine sort of cycle. So, you know, you've you were on that roller coaster of I need something through my mouth in order to get me to my next high, you know, to take me, as you said, from that dark place of giving bad news or hearing bad news. So um, what do you know now about that neurophysiology of, of how the processed carbohydrates um, and dopamines and serotonins, does that explain your experience too? I think it does. I think, um, you know, there's, this is still a, a, area of science that like needs more research. But when it comes to basic rat studies in a lab, they are just as addicted or more addicted to sugar as they are to cocaine and other substances that release dopamine and serotonin and affect those neural pathways. So we know that sugar can be a drug and can be highly addictive and the same thing with processed carbohydrates. And so I learned that about myself and now, you know, taking that whole part of my journey, I do apply it towards patients that I see um, locally in clinic all of the time, because I just know that a sugar addiction is such a rampant problem, just like, you know, binge eating disorder. And so I like to go through and discuss patients' mental health. I know I'm not a social worker. My father was a social worker, actually. And I know I'm not a mental health counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but it's all so interconnected. It's like you can't help someone lose weight without addressing their mental health, I feel. Absolutely. And it's really interesting that you've got that whole package. And I think, you know, well done for you. You know, you've had such a, you know, this lived experience. And so many times when we've had um, other podcast guests that have had this transformative lived experience. And you are now, um, I don't know if you've come across this wounded healer. This is, it's like a wounded healer thing. You've had that, you've walked in their shoes. And when you see the patient on the other side and you go, I understand, you know, no, actually, I do understand. I know I've been there. These are the things that you need to do that. How how now are you going to be able to do that with that sort of detached concern, you know, that you're not reliving and almost re-traumatizing and secondary trauma, re-traumatizing yourself when you see your patients on the other side going through those struggles, you know, where you can obviously connect empathy but still maintain that professional detached concern for your own longevity, you know, as you want going to be the successful, you know, board certified obesity, weight loss management guru. Now, you know, this is fantastic. (laughs) That is a really great question. And I wish I knew the answer. I think one of my flaws as a person and as a doctor is that I'm almost too empathetic and I take work home with me. So those patients that I have to, you know, notify that they have cancer, it's like that bothers me for days. And that's not, something that I even now am great at coping with. Like I won't go eat a carton of Oreos, but I'm not wonderful at coping with it either. I still think about it all the time and delivering any sort of bad news is difficult for me. But in particular, when it has to do with cancer, it's like very difficult given my history with my father and my sister. So exiting primary care for me will be actually very healthy for my mental health because I won't have to notify people of bad news like that anymore. I mean, still have to tell people, you know, we checked your A1C and your insulin levels and you're insulin resistant and you, you know, have type two diabetes. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but I know that I can help them reverse that. So it's kind of like something where it's not as 
stressful as a cancer diagnosis because it is reversible and it's not, you know, a death sentence of any kind or some kind of terminal illness. Um, and so I try to frame a lot of weight loss advice that I give around choice. Like people will tell me how stressful their life is, how they have custody battle issues or their mother has Alzheimer's or things like that. And I'm like, well, you have no choice in any of those things, but you do have a choice in what you're making yourself for your meals. And so you just have to choose differently and you have to go by these guidelines, you know, this food list that I give you, I give people a low carb grocery list and um, these meal plans, I've come up with various meal plan, low carb meal plans for people. And so I try to make it like as straightforward as possible and frame it like a choice rather than a, something that they're stuck with something that they've just been handed like an unfair hand of cards. Hmm. And I think that really gives people hope. And I think that's the that's the key that you know um, when we've interviewed um, Jen Unwin and you know and David Unwin in the UK, you know as a as a general practice doctor, really that's what they're doing is by giving these people hope. You know that there's hope for change. And certainly, as you said, you know diabetes is no longer a death not a death sentence, but you, you know that sort of chronic illness it's reversible so if you can give them hope through those making choices um, then you know they're on the path to success I have to say too it keeps me on track knowing that like my patients know my story so sharing it with them holds me accountable to stay on track which is very interesting and not really it's not really something that happens in other in other fields of medicine I don't think Mm-hmm. Um, so they, a lot of them know about my story because they've heard about it before seeing me, or, you know, they just know the basics. Like they know their doctor used to be 306 pounds, but a lot of times I share the details because it helps inspire and motivate and it helps keep people on track. And so, um, our average weight loss is typically like five to eight pounds per month in clinic. And, um, many of our patients have lost like 50, 75, hundred pounds. And we take people off of insulin, which is my favorite thing. So it's a great, it's a great job. And I'm super excited about this transition as of July 30th. Yeah, that's very exciting. And a lot less stress, I would imagine not being in doing two things at once. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, the last nine months have been a little stressful. So Kevin, you've been writing a book, or you've written a book, and it's been published. Tell us a bit about it. Yes, uh, it is called Fasting While Furious, How I Turned Anger and Sadness into Motivation for Weight Loss. And I self-published it through Amazon, um, actually in June of 2021. And it's about my personal weight loss journey. You know, it's how I put on all the excess weight, like we just kind of discussed. And it's also about, you know, exactly the details of how I... Uh, started my low carb journey with the intermittent fasting and how the weight came off over that 18 month period. And then I have a little getting started guide, you know, how to get started with weight loss and some of my favorite recipes, as well as a sample meal plan. There's like a seven day 21 recipe meal plan in there as well. And so um, it's been a great response so far. It was released a month ago and, um, over 300 copies have sold. And I don't know if most of those are family and friends, which they totally probably are, but, um, I'm just happy to get the word out. And honestly, if the book sold two copies, I would be just as happy. And I hope it can, um, you know, affect even just one person and in, in their own weight loss journey. And, um, you know, I'm trying to bring light to low carb keto and intermittent fasting, um, in a positive light. Cause I think a lot of people, 
make it negative. Um, there's people who think, you know, we're demonizing carbohydrates when really it's just about, you know, cleaning up your diet. And um, I'm really not someone who's like an advocate for the extremes. Like as, you know, some of my patients are keto carnivore, like pretty much steak, eggs, bacon only. And then I have patients who are keto vegan. So I'm like kind of somewhere right in the middle where I advocate for like a very balanced ketogenic slash low carb diet with intermittent fasting. And so I'm just, I'm hoping that my book brings light to that lifestyle, which I know you are both a fan of. Yeah. It, it was really interesting when we had, um, yeah, we someone called it agnostic, like they were dietly sort of diet plan agnostic. So maybe you're keto low carb agnostic. So you're not obviously the, the charismatic keto or you're not the, um, you know, down the other end of um, being atheist keto. So you're somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like kind of moderate with everything when it comes to, with, when it comes to dieting. And I, I've had, you know, very mean messages from cardiologists telling me, did you start my patient on keto? I don't want them eating steak and bacon all day. It's like, never did I say that. Like I have never told a patient to only eat steak. Like, I mean, you should check out Sean Baker because uh, it's working mm. out pretty well for him, but I've still never recommended that. I have like a very robust list of foods from like vegetables to lean meats to eggs and cheese and yogurt and nuts and berries. So yeah, we interviewed um, Nick Norowitz, who was one of the co-authors on the, the Mediterranean sort of keto as well. So really what that is, it's just a modified Mediterranean diet. So really that's the way that you can sort of, you know, um, market your particular sort of recommendations. And we also interviewed just recently uh, Doug Reynolds from the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners. And really, you know, that's a sort of a bit of a minefield for um, for doctors is about the sort of the consensus sort of statements and standard of care. How do you negotiate those gray areas? Very difficult. So that's a really difficult topic because um, you could have patients themselves, this happened to me in primary care, who will bring guidelines to you, you know, like FDA, CDC, USDA, all these different guidelines that come out, people can just like go online and print them and hand them to you. And you're like, have to argue against what governmental bodies are saying. And so there's guidelines stating that you should be having 75% of your intake from carbohydrates. And so it's difficult to navigate that as a doctor. And it was harder in primary care actually than it is in weight loss medicine. Cause people at least take you seriously as a, as a, a specialist in that field and they know you're board certified in weight loss. And so they know that what you say, uh, you know, has some weight to it, but it was difficult in primary care. And thankfully slowly, but surely certain bodies of medicine and, um, you know, certain governmental bodies and certain uh, associations like the American Diabetes Association are mm. coming around with their low carb recommendations. And I think someday, five years, 10 years, it'll be just like more and more recommendations will come out in support of low carb. Like it would be helpful if some of these, um, bodies would come forward and just say that low carb is an option. Like the, I'm not even, you know, saying like to come out and say, this is the one and only way to lose weight and the best way to lose weight. It would just be nice if they would acknowledge it as like a healthy and sustainable way to lose weight. But I haven't, you know, I haven't, it's, I'm just like waiting. I'm trying to be patient and 
<laughs> hope that people can see the light. And honestly, what ends up happening is people start eating low carb and they start losing weight and they feel great and they have more energy and their and their glucose goes down. And so they do it for like 10 or 14 days and they realize it's wonderful. So yeah, it sticks. We had a we had an interview with somebody called Dan Grief and he's a uh he stands for an MP in a member of parliament in the UK. And he was saying nothing ever changes from the top down. It has to be from the bottom up, even going back to women's votes. And it all starts from the bottom up. So we have to be very vocal and tell people about it and shout about it from the roofs. And I think it's fabulous that we've got so many doctors that are there beside us lay people um, shouting about it as well. So great. It'll happen eventually, just like one person at a time. That's what I always tell myself. <laughs> yeah, like the starfish in the sea. Yep. Yeah, it matters to that one. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said because you were saying from carnivore to vegan. Have you worked with many people who are vegan? No. So I have to say I've only been practicing weight loss medicine, you know, for nine months or so maybe not even, I mean, it's eight or nine months and it's been two days a week for me. So, um, it's like less than half time that I've been doing weight loss medicine. And it's not common for me to have someone be a vegan who wants to lose weight. But when that does come across, I still advocate for low carbohydrate diets. I just have to modify them in a way that works for them. So they're going to have to eat lentils and beans and maybe some soy products. And so I try my best to work with them on a number, you know, they could use an app like carb manager to count their carbs still, but I work on, with them on a number that's reasonable, like 80 grams or 90 grams of carbs per day. Cause many vegans who are unhealthy, you know, there are obese vegans out there eating Oreos all day. <laughs> many vegans who are unhealthy eat 300, 400, 500 grams of carbohydrates all, you know, all day long, they can eat certain types of pasta and bread, and that can be the, you know, the majority of their intake. So I just work with them on like cleaning up their diet, like minimizing their processed food and making sure to get the carb count certainly below hundred grams a day, but sometimes lower than that, depending on their tolerance. Yeah. Cause I, I think it's quite hard to find protein. I mean, You've got the you've got the soy and the lentils, but you, again, that can be quite high carb. So it's very it's, difficult. It's, it's such a, a challenge. challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah, it's definitely like a medical challenge for me. But what also happens is a couple of times this has happened. I've had patients who are vegan for health reasons. So they come to me vegan because they thought that was the best thing for them, and they have no problem eating meat. They genuinely switch to veganism because they were convinced by you know, a documentary or a friend that this was the rest, the best, most healthy way to lose weight and live. And so they come to me 350 pounds vegan. And I'm like, well, you know, are you doing this for personal or religious reasons? Is there something is that, you know, I, I like to get to the bottom of why they're vegan to begin with, because if it's because they were trying to be healthy, that might not be the best reason to be vegan. And you know, if they want to stick with it and try a low carb vegan, that's fine. But I might actually have them start eating eggs for protein if they have no, you know, moral um, aversion to it. Mm. I definitely was in the camp that I believed that um, vegetarian, I, I, I've never been as pushed as far as vegan, but believing that vegetarian was the healthy way to be. And if you wanted to be healthy, you have to 
be a vegetarian and I've, I've done it a few times but I'm, I'm now worried because I'm, and I brought my boys up as vegetarians when they were born and now I think oh my god what what did I do to them because for the first two years they didn't have any meat or any eggs um so where where were they getting their protein from because we didn't eat lentils and things like that so it's yeah hard to to take that in and think what what have I done because we, we only we can only know what we know and we don't know what we don't know it's so hard when you have all these conflicting data sources out there there's just like you know it's everything from an informal facebook post to books by doctors and you're thinking that you're reading something uh and following the right advice like there's the esselstein diet which is like a vegan diet that bill clinton famously followed um and that diet's vegan, right? So you're di- you're reading this book thinking like Bill Clinton followed this diet and a doctor wrote about it. Like it must be the best diet for me and for my arteries and for my health. And um, in my experience, it is not. So Was that mm. after his quadruple bypass that he went vegan? And he got really quite lean and gaunt, didn't yes, he? Yes, that's right. Right. Okay. Yeah. I haven't looked into that diet. You know, I actually did that diet at one point when I was 300 pounds and it did nothing for me because <laughs> I still ate processed food. So it really wasn't helping. Um, and the fact that you can eat vegan and eat Oreos will always get me. Cause that's just like, I mean, how can it be healthy? <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, I tried that. I tried Weight Watchers, which they always gave me so many points. Mm-hmm. I could eat like an entire pizza a day and still have more points left. And so it just didn't, you know, this like, rudimentary approach to just counting calories never worked for me. And so I try to have patients avoid counting fat, avoid counting protein, avoid counting calories, just count carbs and make sure they're eating enough. Yep. You know, enough food overall. What's, what's your daily sort of food looking like these days? Um, So I have remained less than 40 grams of carbs per day since, since starting this whole weight loss process. So it's been like five years now that I've maintained fewer than 40 grams of carbs. And I actually do fewer than 40 grams total. I don't do net carbs. If something is processed, like if you're having like a premier protein shake, there's a lot of ingredients in that. And so I always encourage people to count the total and not the net because I feel like it's closer to, you know, it's more accurate to count total carbs, particularly in processed food than net. So I just always count total and I do 40 grams or less per day, but I do have some patients who do like 20 grams net instead, because they'd rather count net carbs. Um, So I eat like that. And then I do typically a two to six hour eating window. So sometimes I eat between four and 6 PM. Sometimes I eat between 12 and 6 PM. Um, I, I often do one meal a day. So my schedule with work um, right now, I've been, ba- you know, balancing primary care and weight loss. So my schedule has been a little crazy. And so I don't make specific times per day where I know I'm going to eat. I'm more just like eat when I'm hungry and when I have time. And it often ends up being one meal a day around six o'clock, um, which I know is great for, um, you know, in- that's a great intermittent fasting regimen in and of itself um, because so- you have. Sorry, are, you, are you going to get, are you getting enough calories in that one meal? Yeah, I do. I eat over like an hour and I'll often have multiple servings. So I'll eat uh, something like 
half of a chicken, like I'll have half of a rotisserie chicken and a pile of sauteed vegetables, and then I'll have nuts and berries for dessert. And so my calorie count is always over 1500, but it's actually often over 2000. I usually don't count calories at all. I just know like in general, how many I'm eating or some days I count just out of curiosity. And do you cook? I do. Yes. I love to cook. I was uh, raised Um, my mom is Azorian Portuguese. I know my last name is French, but my mom's Portuguese. And so I was raised on Portuguese food and Fall River, Massachusetts is very famous for its Portuguese cuisine. So my mom's a great cook and taught me how to cook. And so I've been trying to um, adapt her recipes to low carb. And so a lot of them involve um, charisse and linguisa, like spicy sausages. And so I'll make all different types of spicy meat dishes and uh, vegetable stir fry dishes. And so I have an air fryer that I bought like six months ago and I use it almost every single day. Like I wish I bought one sooner. (laughs) So I I love air frying and I'm actually started to work on a recipe book because I, I realized that I come up with all these recipes for patients all the time and I'm always sharing them with people. And it's very local that I share recipes. Like it's just, you know, my small panel of patients that I have in Massachusetts that get to see these recipes. So I decided to start working on them for publishing so I can share the recipes with the world. Right. Yeah. That's really, it's really good that you're actually, you know, it, uh, I thank your mother for teaching her son to cook because that is such a life school, you know, life skill that seems to sort of get missed on mothers to, to sons. You know, there's a big, a big thing, you know, mothers to daughters, obviously, you know, gendered roles, but, um, I have three adult sons and, you know, we sort of set the, the week up that, um, I would sort of take, take one adult boy to, to, do the cooking and then my partner took his two adult sons and they did three nights I did three nights so Fridays was catch and kill so you had to fend for yourself and it's really good we got the boys to plan you know to do the prep to do the cook as well as the cleaning up so they could actually see the whole process of you know, thinking ahead that if we want to cook this, then we need to shop for this. And it was really a systematic way to help prepare them. So they didn't rely on fast food all the time. So it, it became this um, a great social thing too. So we, we had three nights each, you know, separating with the boys. And um, around, you know, the meal the meal time that it became a bit of a family time as well. So um, and then we're teaching them how to do low carb as well, because my partner and I uh, are both low carb and the boys had to do the cauliflower rice. They had to do, you know, make the make the zoodles. They had to make, um, you know, these alternate things. So when we slowly, stealthfully got them to eat low carb, they did really well. They're, you know, they're little pock-faced skin cleared up you know they were actually really happy and would talk to the parents you know their mood lifted um I yeah, love that was, that's such a great story it was really story. good it was really good for them but you know your your mother did a great service to you so thank you to, <laughs> to Kevin's mom for um for teaching her her boy to cook so yeah we need <laughs> I'm a, sure we, she'll love to hear that <laughs> we need a low carb custard tart recipe oh, oh yeah yes that's Portuguese Custard tart, oh. yes. Oh, they're so good. I grew up eating them. So I was like literally less than one block from a Portuguese bakery growing up. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I miss that stuff for sure. There, I mean, I've never had like fried dough or custard pastry or any kind of anything similar to what I'm used to eat, what I was used to eating growing up. That's low carb. So I'm trying, I'm going to work on a recipe book and we'll see where it comes. Right. With your patients, do you, are they, are they sort of come from different cultures? I mean, do you have patients that perhaps are African-American, that have some Caribbean, that perhaps have some Asian, um, you know, European cultures that you need to be mindful of food traditions? So um, what's interesting is where I was born and raised and where I currently live and where I currently practice is Fall River. And there's a very high percentage of Portuguese immigrants and people of Portuguese descent. So there's many, many um, Portuguese restaurants and people come from all over Massachusetts to Fall River to enjoy their Portuguese cuisine. So um, it is actually something where I meet a patient and they'll say they're Cape Verdean Portuguese or Azorean Portuguese or, you know, mainland Portugal Portuguese. And they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm used to eating rice and beans and potatoes. And, you know, my diet is very high in starch and I'm not sure like how to approach this. And so I have to work with them on low carb recipes. But as of right now, all of my recommended recipes don't really have like a Portuguese spin to them. They're kind of just like more generic, kind of like American food, some, some Italian food. Um, low carb. So I need, I, you know, I just like want to have that resource available to my patients, you know. I was just thinking of all the sloppy joes, you know, those sorts of recipes. But <laughs> that's absolutely, you've got a market there because um, we interviewed Christina and she was doing black people keto and that was exactly her thing. So she was um, Caribbean. So um, she needed to know how to do low carb for her you know, for her culture in that, in that way, because, you know, for the rice and beans factor as well and the flavor profiles for, you know, like jerk chicken, you know, that's something that is, you know, comfort food for her. And all the keto mainstream recipes were obviously very Western and Anglo and it doesn't cater for, you know, the diversity. So you can see it, please, like you can almost you can see like exactly what it yeah. would take, you know, like we mm-hmm. just need someone to make these cookbooks because it's not too hard like it can happen you can do it Mm -hmm. it's just like it takes the effort and I know a lot of the spices and seasonings used in all of these countries you know Jamaican uh, countries and like countries like Jamaica uh, Cabo Verde which is Cape Verdean um, certainly you could use things like cauliflower rice and you could still eat things like beans it would just have to be a smaller portion Mm -hmm. and you could use all the same spices and seasonings that you would normally use. So I work on like a case by case basis with, with each patient that comes to me, but there has to be a way to just have, you know, an entire, like an entire recipe cookbook or whatever that is perfectly catered toward these different um, countries. Mm. And I think that gets to the sustainability factor as well for your patients that you, you know, you need to be able to, as you, as you're doing is, you know, you, in your cons- consultation is to tailor it to, you know, that individual. We don't have, we're not all one size fits all. Jackie and I know right. that we keto differently. So you can't do the, the one size fits all meal plan for, for your patients. I like that um, saying like keto differently. Cause that's what I mm-hmm. wish that these uh, cardiologists that give me a hard time understood <laughs> that it's not all one diet. It's like so many different diets, so many variations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we probably all three of us do different things, um, but it, it still works. It works for us. And what works for me might not work for you and vice versa. 
Mm. Yeah. But there's that common thread of the, you know, the fasting and the, the general low carb, and we all kind of try to watch our processed food intake. And I know you guys are doing a challenge, like a 100 day. Are you still on that? I am. Lu- <laughs> Louise is. <laughs> it was that alternate day fasting, right? Yeah. So that's where, that's where, that's a great example of where it's, where it's different because it didn't work for me. I was miserable doing three days a week, whereas two days is quite doable and I'm back on two days a week. And I wasn't losing any weight. My blood sugar wasn't going down. So they didn't feel like any point in, in doing it. And so I just stopped. And I, and I think at the time, Louise, I, I don't think I felt great, did I? I didn't no, feel you- good. See, and, and that was really interesting, you know, how we, uh, we just said we, we keto differently and Jackie and I fast differently. So, you know, on the alternate day challenge, like I was going, like I cycle through the week. So keep alter- alternating, but Jackie's got a family and, you know, she doesn't do the cooking. Jigalene does the cooking with the, you know, with her boys as well. So, you know, having set days was, was her pattern. And I've, you know, my results were, you know, better than, better than Jackie's but when we were last year when we were doing the two days the two set days you know Jackie had fabulous results but I didn't you know it did not work for me so um, yes I am still going and it's really interesting because Andrew wants to keep going and it's just like I like eating I want to eat but um, (laughs) you know it's but it's working for me because I've I busted through a stall and, you know, I've got so much better blood sugar, um, like glucose, my glucose control has gone back to um, perhaps like 2018 levels, like, you know. Oh, that's really good. I, yeah, because I was sort of creeping up, partly stress and, you know, big things happening in my life. But I'm back to a, like a definitely a 2018 um, level consistently. And, um, you know, my clothes are looser and I'm really happy with this, you know, but Andrew wants to take it to the next level. He wants to have a, have a hundred day, no alcohol challenge. So, um, Uh I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) Divorce. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Almost. Yeah. I'll get the paperwork filled out now. (laughs) I've actually never gone more than 24 hours. I mean, maybe like 30, but I've never done two days or 36 hours or anything like that. I don't know why I just get hungry. So I eat, you know, but I don't think you need to. I think, you know, the fact is, you know, you can, you know, give yourself permission, you know, give it a go, see how you go. But you have found your sweet spot. You know, you, I don't know how you do a two hour eating window, you know, I, because I like eating. Um, but you found your sweet spot with the amount of your fasting. You've been in maintenance. I, you know, why mess with something that's working unless you really want to, you know, see how it feels to go. I mean, I do 40 hours and then I eat. And then I do another 40 hours and then, yeah, so. Yeah, I w- well, my weight does fluctuate. You know, it's been, I've been in the 180s for most of the past three years or so, but sometimes it creeps up like 195 or 198. And really, I just have to get back to that like two hour, four hour, six hour eating window and get back to counting the carbs because it's so easy to just go over without realizing, or maybe it's just something stressful happens and I stray, which of course that's going to happen. And it's really just how, you know, how often it happens and how easily you forgive yourself. And so, um, 
Yeah, it's something that I've thought about a lot and read a lot about with, you know, more extended fasting, but I just haven't like experimented with it myself. And I don't really have patience doing extended fasts either. Have you mm. met Jason Fung? I've not met him yet. I wonder if he's going to go to uh, low carb San Diego because I'll be there this year. Yeah, so, well, that'd yeah. be that'd be really interesting. Um, you know, he's he's such a great guy. So I went twice to low carb Breckenridge. So that was a really great, um, you know, great conferences. And awesome. um, yeah, so that was really good. And it was so it's so pity that you did you never got down to um, down your way down in New London with the the Keto Fest. Um, in New London, Connecticut. No, I haven't done any of these things yet. Oh. <laughs> Actually, this low carb San Diego, low carb mm. USA. Um, that's my first like low carb conference ever. So I'm so excited about it because mm. I'm sure there'll be a ton of people there to meet. And um, I've seen the speaker list and I'm like really excited. I'm going to be like a, it's going to be like meeting a bunch of celebrities for me. So I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That'd be, really That'd be good. good. And I'm sure that, you know, we'll, we'll, send and send uh, send good wishes to you and to um to our friend Doug Reynolds you know the the conference organizer so um that'd be really good yes. um yeah uh, Jackie's a bit like that when she ever gets you know close to um like Brian Lenskis you know she goes all fangirly and um and that sort of stuff, so. <laughs> I love him he's such a sweetheart yeah. his heart is in the right place absolutely definitely is so with all your weight loss, and I've similarly had a 130-pound weight loss as well, I, can I ask a delicate question? Of course. It's okay. Um, I've got loose skin, and I want to know, is having lost a lot of weight yourself, you know, what am I going to do about this loose skin? Will it ever go away? Now, I'm told that fasting will, you know, Jason Fung has promised me if I autophagize <laughs> enough, I'm going to recycle all these proteins in my loose skin. But, man, oh, my gosh, I am just, please, is it going to go away? I Listen, girl, same. That's what I always say to my patients. I'm like, I also have loose skin. Like it is there. I do believe intermittent fasting can help it. Actually, like hate to turn a question around on you so quickly, but with this fasting challenge that you've been doing, have you noticed improvement? Because I'm so curious. It still wobbles. <laughs> it still jiggles. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe know. what Jason Fung says. I believe that fasting can really help. And I think another um, super beneficial thing to try is aerobic exercise, swimming, running, biking. I think all of that helps. Hydration helps. Age helps. Like if you lost all your weight when you were 20, it'd be like you wouldn't have a single bit of excess skin. <laughs> yeah, but I, I was great when I was 20. I mean, I, you know, pregnancy and obviously being morbidly obese, you know, didn't help in my 30s. But um, yeah, okay. I, I just, I, I'm struggling with the, with the idea how long is, I mean, how long is a piece of string? So, if um yeah i i am trying to be if the mindset of that fasting will help with the autophagy and obviously that little bit more extended fasting will help hopefully you know recycle those um those proteins and um yeah i oh, will just I, keep keep the faith I, I think i like to just say that it's kind of like a badge of honor so i have the loose skin you know my significant other doesn't care and so I have not really felt compelled to 
pay for surgery to get rid of it. I really just like have it. And it's just like kind of an attribute. And I'd rather have that badge of honor of excess skin than all of the excess weight that I had, you know, it was 125 pounds of baggage. And so it's just something that I deal with, but I have had patients, um, with excess skin. And as long as you document on a few separate occasions, um, rashes under the skin flap, um, a lot of surgeons will cover with, you know, cover almost fully with insurance. They'll cover surgery for removal, tummy tucks and things like that. So Mm. it's possible to actually have it removed, um, with a tummy tuck surgery and even have it covered by insurance if it bothers you that much. But then you end up with the scars as well. But I know you're like trading one thing for another. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, what, what kind of badge do I want? Do I want the floppy wibbly jiggly one or do I want the scar? So Jackie, I, I know where you sit with, with this particular <laughs> decision, but um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have contemplated, I live in Bangkok, Thailand. So this is the, the cosmetic, you know, plastic capital, you know, of great surgery. And um yeah, so there are obviously options and stuff, and there is that sort of medi tourism. So the, I, there is you, you see the advertising for you know the cosmetic medi tourism here. So um, I don't know. My, what I think is you could try the fa- you you're doing the fasting. It sounds like you've got to do another hundred days. No, I don't have another hundred days. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll finish it off with a seven day fast at the end. But my thinking is that you can try these things and do it and you might Absolutely. you might make a change whereas if you if you cut your skin and you've got scars you can't get rid of that you can never you can never go back on that can you whereas operating in another 18 months time is still a, is still an option but the only thing is um yeah it, it is i in the back of my mind, it's it's an unnecessary, like it's an elective surgery, which I get that it's an elective, it's a, it's a choice, but it then exposes you to to other risks, you know, post complications, mm-hmm. infections, and that sort of thing. And as Jackie said, you know, scarring. Where in my mind is, yeah, I I will keep going with the fasting until such time, but I can't quantify anything because I don't necessarily, I haven't weighed myself, well, I don't know what my weight is, um, and I I didn't actually measure. So, um, yeah, I should have done the measurements at the start of the 100-day fast, but, um, yeah. You would not believe how many messages I get on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter that say, I'm scared to start my weight loss journey because I don't want a bunch of excess skin. That's what, that's the message. And I'm like, you can't let that stop you. Like Mm. that can't be the reason why you don't do this. You know what I mean? Like that is potentially fixable, whether it's with, you know, fasting, further weight loss, exercise, surgery, like it's a potentially fixable problem. So to let it stop a person. But Jason, but no, but Jason Fung says categorically with his, with his fasting regime, you know, his patients don't have the loose skin um, options, but that's, that's true for you know for for Jason, but I didn't. I came quite late to the just to sort of tell the listeners. I came quite late to the fasting party, um, so you know in terms of my weight loss was a little bit different. So front ended differently to to really only incorporating regular regular fasting um, more in more recent years. So I've got a bit of catching up to do. So to recycle right, my it might proteins. Right, just take time. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I wear Spanx, by the way. I might be like the only man who wears Spanx in the world. And I really don't care because I just put in so much work and to have, and to like have that excess skin or to look frumpy in a, you know, in a, like a button down shirt for work, I'm in just like not okay with. So I wear that and it flattens all the excess skin. And I put this in my book. Cause I'm like, I'm so open about this whole weight loss process. And like, I want people to know how difficult and how real this whole journey was for me. And so I am like totally acknowledging and admitting to things like that. It just feels more comfortable to like tuck things away, you know, and people think that I edit my photos, right? Like, how do you have this shirtless photo where you, where you lost 125 pounds and where's all that extra skin? And I will answer right in the comments. It's tucked. (laughs) (laughs) Like like it's there. I just tuck it in. (laughs) So before we come to our last questions, can you tell people Go through, tell them the title of the book again and where they can find it and also where they can find you on social media. Yes. Uh, So the title of my book is Fasting While Furious, How I Turned Anger and Sadness into Motivation for Weight Loss. It is available on Amazon. That's the easiest place to search for it. Um, You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevin Gendro, just K-E-V-I-N-G-E-N-D-R-E-A-U. And I'm on Facebook as well. Um, it's facebook.com slash kgendro. And you said you have a TikTok account. Yes, TikTok as well. Like my TikTok account is at Kevin Gendro too. So easy to find. It's the same name on pretty much everything. Brilliant. So then we're going to ask you for your three top tips that you would give. And we'll leave it open to how you want to interpret that. Three top tips. Okay. Um, so my most important tip that I teach patients, friends, family members, followers on social media is you have to learn how to forgive yourself. I think a lot of people when they are starting a weight loss journey or they're in the middle of, you know, uh, losing weight, they will stray at some point, inevitably you will stray from this journey. You'll go to a barbecue or a birthday party and you'll have something that you know, you shouldn't have had. And it's so important to not let that one party derail your entire, uh, progress that you've made so far. And so, um, low carb MD talks about progress, not perfection. And I just think that that's such an important saying and such an important thing to keep in mind when you're losing weight. And so learning to forgive yourself and learning to love yourself is like the number one, most important, uh, tip that I give to people. Um, some other important ones are Intermittent, you know, when people talk about low carb and intermittent fasting and exercise and all these different regimens for weight loss, they tend to think that they have to do everything all at one time. Like, okay, tomorrow, you know, Monday morning, I'm like going to eat less than 40 grams of carbs. I'm going to fast intermittently, you know, on like a 16 to eight schedule. And I'm going to start working out for 60 to 90 minutes every day at six o'clock. It's like way too much. And so Um, one really important tip that I give people is just like, start with something simple. And if that's just giving up soda for the first week or committing to, you know, a low carb diet with a specific number in mind, 
then that is, you know, hard enough to deal with. That's a hard enough change to make. And that is definitely a step in the right direction. And so, you know, one thing at a time and take it easy. I usually tell people and, you know, not to just like shoot your shot and do all the things at once with, you know, every intervention you can think of, because I think you're more likely to give up if you try too many things at once. Nobody has time to do all those things that I listed. So yeah, it becomes too hard. Yeah. Overwhelming. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the fasting definitely has to come after once you've changed, you can tap into your fat stores, you can gain everything that you need um, nutritionally from your food. And then you can think about cutting out. But if you're going to cut huge amounts of calories and what you're eating, you won't have enough energy to, to even carry on. Right. Oh, a third tip. Um, Okay. I think a great tip would be uh, when in doubt, eat clean. So people will often ask, like one of my most common questions from a follower, from a patient, from a family member, friend is, can I eat this? Right? Like they'll send me a little link to something. It'll be like a text message with a picture. And it's like, you know, it's a label, a nutrition label. Can I eat this? It's like, you can consume that. I'm not going to stop you from eating that. Like, of course you can eat it, but when in doubt, eat clean. If you don't know what all of these ingredients are in this food that you're eating, because there's like 45 chemicals and I don't even know how to pronounce half of them, probably not the best thing to eat. Like it's much better for you to go eat some berries, eat some nuts, have an egg, like, you know, where the egg came from. (laughs) So that's like one of my most important tips. And I, and I tell people to do that, you know, right away. I do have people who do like very dirty or lazy keto diets where they're eating highly processed bars and shakes and things, and they still lose weight. But in general, I think it's best to just like stick with clean eating and avoid chemicals and things. But it's really hard, you know, in the fact that, you know, obviously being having a having a huge sort of, you know, social media presence as you do. And when you're on Facebook and you're in these Facebook groups and particularly not being in in North America, having visited North America and Jackie will know that, you know, you've got Whole Foods, you've got Trader Joe's, you've got all these, you know, Sam's clubs, you've got all this, you know, great places that has these great products and, you know, Amazon sort of range of products, um, keto products on, on Amazon. Well, one, it's not fair for the, you know, for us that sort of has to, to sort of, you know, don't have access to this sort of stuff. But does it then lend itself to, yeah, being overwhelmed? You know, as you said, you know, the dirty, lazy keto with still keto foods, which not, not necessarily are keto because they've got yucky chemicals in them right and there are all kinds of fake sugars that affect your insulin levels yeah yeah seed oils seed oils it's so hard and that's one of the reasons why i tell people to count total instead of net carbs is so that if they are tricked by a marketing scheme by some company that it markets keto things at least they're not doing themselves too much of a disservice if they're counting total total carbs. Because if you look at, you know, one of these ice cream keto brands, the total carbs will be 26, but the net carbs will be two or five or whatever, because they put a bunch of fiber powder in it. And they're like, look, it's healthy. But if they're counting the total carbs, they're way less likely to eat a large portion of that. They're going to have a couple bites because they're like, wow, half this container is 26 grams. So I'm not going to waste most of my carbs for the day on this container. 
So that's just a helpful tip that I give, you know, people to, to count total instead of net because it will sure. protect them from the companies that are really good at marketing things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I find that in the Facebook group and people that message me directly is, you know, this says it's keto. Well, it says it's keto, but then you but turn it around not. and it's still got cane sugar or maple syrup nectar yeah something Mm. else in it but it's cane sugar but it's honey but it's you know it's like (laughs) true there's so many sneaky names for sugar it's terrible Mm. yeah great well kev it's been absolutely wonderful and i wish you all the best with your transition to your new practice and um yeah it'll be obviously a sad chapter for you at the end of this month with the you know saying goodbye to to primary care but I am quietly, optimistically and hopeful, you know, for you and your practice and, you know, the impact that you're going to have, um, you know, being a low carb friendly doctor in um, Falls River, Massachusetts. And um, yeah, I think it's just, it's just wonderful to know that there's someone like you out there for, for people that, you know, want to, want to take this journey and having that medical oversight and direction. So well done for you for taking a giant leap of faith and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. This was amazing. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Well, Jackie, there's so much in that interview that I certainly really resonated with my own lived experience and my own weight loss journey. And I think the first thing is, well, first of all, um, Dr. Kevin and I have lost very similar amounts of weight um, with me losing 130 pounds and Dr. Kevin with 125 pounds. But we took different paths. Uh, Obviously, I had the weight loss surgery, which really started my journey, but certainly using a low-carb intermittent fasting to sort of ultimately keep it off um, is a real... Um, yeah, parallels with with my journey. Mm. But more powerfully for me was obviously the role that emotions played. And, you know, with Dr. Kevin and the grief that he experienced with the loss of his father and with his sister, and both of us really used food to, you know, for that self-soothing and self-medication to really see our way through loss, grief, depression, anxiety. Mm. And it was really insightful of him to to acknowledge that the role of emotions had in that. Yeah. And I guess in a way that his sister's illness was the catalyst because he realised he had to step up and uh, look after her children and he knew that he needed to be around to do that. So I, I think that's that was his motivating factor, wasn't it? His why as to why he needed to do this. So really, you and I have talked to you know a, a number of times about whys and what your why was wanting to live to one hundred and seven, and um, certainly with with my why, and it was really, as you said, Doctor Kevin identified what his why was. You know, having to sort of um, care for his sister's children, but I think. That was reinforced by his new learning about the role of um, low-carbohydrate diets linking cancer to, you know, insulin and that inflammatory state. So he he knew that the sooner he could lower insulin, the better. 
Mm. Obviously, he did that through um, restricting carbohydrates and and with his intermittent fasting. Yeah. The interesting um, thing is, sorry, I was just going to say. Obviously, we don't know, but with his family history of cancer, if he'd have carried on on the path he was on, it's probably likely that he would have had some sort of cancer as well further down the line. But if not, I think, as you pointed out with the family link, but it's about the quality of the food that he was eating because he said primarily it was, you know, looking at the cookies, crackers, you know, and that was really that processed food and the food systems that he was living in was really conducive to to him eating highly processed foods. Mm. Yeah. And but it's so common nowadays, you know, and he's he's young. He's still young. And they the children just grow up with all this ultra processed foods and going to McDonald's, living on McDonald's and KFC and all things like that. It it's not surprising, is it? And I think what is more surprising is that we're not in a worse state than we actually are. Which is really interesting with my the three adult young men, you know, living back in Australia and you know, and I was really quite proud that we actually showed them how to cook. I mean, I don't really know what, what they're doing now, living as they are independently, but when I speak to speak to them and I'm you know it was really pleasing the other day that I know that Hayden was having a steak. And it's like, yay, steak. So as you said, not McDonald's and not KFC, which were obviously two of his favourites. Or pizza. Yeah. Yeah, pizza was yeah. another one. So I, I, you know, Ben and Alex, they're, they're so different. They're, you know, they're twins, but they're so different. So Alex will go out and have McDonald's with his girlfriend and things like that. And Ben won't. He he never eats McDonald's. He won't drink. He hasn't drunk Coke since he was seven. Um, he, at, he, at the moment, he's on a, he's not eating ice cream thing. So he's going to 2021 is no ice cream year. Um, and he does things like that, but he'll quite often come in and cook himself a steak, uh, for lunch or even I think in the middle of the night, he might get up and have one. But I don't care because it's real food. food. Yeah, he still he still eats the other things that young people do, and he'll have a have biscuits and things. But I'm glad that he knows that he can do other things. But that's the power in the education, and that's really where Dr. Kevin is leading the light now as an obesity medicine sort of specialist. That he will not only through his lived experience, but his understanding and appreciation of the science behind. Um, the the role of using low carb and intermittent fasting, you know, for the betterment of his patients, and we wish him all the best of you know in his practice. And we know that he's connecting well with the community, the low carb community, as he was busy on social media with the low carb USA. So with our good friend Doug Reynolds as well. Oh yeah, we introduced them to get to the, each other. So hopefully he got a chance to catch up with yeah. him couple of weekends ago so jackie where can we get the show notes for dr kevin so the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero five five great thanks jackie it would be great if you could support us through patreon go to patreon.com 
forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.